Father God, thank you for another week where we're able to approach you by coming here and to say that we belong to you and and we want to get together with with other believers and worship you in in this place and and learn more about you to study your word to to sing to you to to really sit in the truth of your word and and take it in and allow it to change us and to to get together like i said with other christians to to hopefully encourage one another and to think hard about what these things mean what your word means and and what we ought to do about it today in particular is is a difficult subject for many so i pray that during this time you would you would really reveal the meaning of your word to us and that we would not just argue what we've heard but that we would allow ourselves to be defined by what your word says and uh, i pray that we would be we would be welcome or welcoming to have our minds transformed and our hearts transformed and renewed into greater Christ likeness and into greater understanding um, to really know what your word says and to be unified absolutely unified amidst the struggle we have to understand what your word says. I pray that you would speak through me, that you would help me to say what needs to be said, that you would cause us to ask the right questions, cause us to have the right kinds of thoughts. And and that you would just shape us you would move us to action based on the things that we're going to look at today. Please be with all the people that aren't here right now. There's several, it feels like, that are not here with us, and, and that's interesting given our topic. Um, I pray that you would let us know who needs to be encouraged, who needs to be given the message that we're going to read in Hebrews today, and who needs to be encouraged to, to carry on and to do what they're doing uh, to listen to your voice and to live out this Christian life. Bless this time and in Jesus' name, amen. I was unsure as to whether or not to just turn this into a community group meeting and have a discussion. And maybe that's, that's not a bad idea. Um, what? I still didn't hear what you said. Yes, true. That's true. For the most part, yeah, this is one CG, isn't it? So, uh, winners. Um, I didn't even think about that. That's kind of crazy. Logan, you're officially part of Nate CG. <clears throat> wow, yeah. So, here we are. We're going to be in Hebrews 6. Um, Neil, I'm just going to talk at you directly because you're the first, <laughs> you're the only visitor. Um, just kind of get you caught up. We've been going through Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Um, what we like to do most of the time is just read the Bible and, and preach the Bible and talk about the Bible and allow it to kind of determine what our topics for discussion are going to be. Um, a lot of people call that expository preaching, so we're just taking what the Word says and kind of expounding on that. 
Um, we previously went through Acts, and then we took a break, and we did some topical sermons, kind of addressing what we felt like needed to be said to this church. And uh, since then, a lot of things have changed. A lot of people have moved different places uh, for good reasons. And, and now we've been going through Hebrews for the, for the past little while, and we're just going verse by verse, trying to understand what it has to say. And uh, we're going to start in chapter 6 today. I didn't take a note. It looks like everybody has a Bible. But if you don't, there's one on the bar back there. And I'm fairly certain that it's page 650 if you need to find it. So help yourself to those. And you can take those if you need to. Uh, We got them for you guys. So recap really quick because you know what else is interesting? I think... Logan, were you the only person that was here last week? I think, I mean, you and me, and because I think Rebecca's, we're checking on her parents, yeah, Nate was working, so a little recap. Um, Last week we discussed chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3. In those verses, the author of Hebrews began to kind of, he went on a little tangent. He's going on a little tangent. It's not exactly little. He's going on a tangent. Um, he's departing from the, the broader message to, again, he's done this before, but he's going to do it again. He's challenging his audience. Um, he had been talking, he'd just been getting into information about high priests and how Jesus is our high priest. And he started getting into the details of that and what that looks like. But then he says, now, wait a second, I want to say more, but I need to stop here for, for just a second and, and talk to you directly. And he had given them warnings before saying things like, pay attention to Jesus, lest you drift away, and let's hold fast to this confession, and approach Jesus with confidence. And and he kept reminding them throughout Hebrews, stick to Jesus. But he gets a little bit more blunt uh, at the end of chapter 5, and definitely approaching uh, the verses we're getting into here. He, He says that they're dull. He says that they're dull of hearing. He calls them immature. Uh, He said that pretty much they knew the scriptures, but they didn't exactly demonstrate that they had a firm grasp of the scripture. They they weren't living like mature believers. Uh, He said, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the Bible because they were, quote, unskilled in the word of righteousness. And he said that they lacked discernment, trained by constant practice. He said, you ought to be teachers by now. But they hadn't matured enough to be teachers. Uh, He he instead of of calling them teachers, he compared them to babies. And I use the term Bible babies (laughs) um, to kind of describe this kind of mentality, how, how... they, they kind of sat there and soaked up the word, but it, it didn't cause them to mature. They weren't maturing, though they sat there and listened to it all the time. Um, so in the end, though, rather than leaving them to that immaturity, he says, let us, at the beginning of chapter, of chapter 6, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And I kind of made a big deal out of that. He, he doesn't just say, you better get your act together. I'm going to come back in a year and check on you. Get, get it straight. But he says, come on, we are the church. I'm, I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to teach you. And we, as the church, need to mature. We need to move on past these things. So it wasn't just him sitting back pointing his finger and saying, listen, you guys are screwing up. Deal with it. But, but he, he looked at them as brothers and sisters, which he's already done before, and he said, we, we need to move on. Um, and we talked a little bit we, about how he, he said that training in righteousness took constant practice. And we looked at it as a discipline that has to be, has to be exercised. And, and I tried to talk about how we we as a church need to work together to move on to maturity. And we talked about kind of what that looks like, what, what we need to do. Um, 
we want to grow as Christians, obviously. Like, I don't think that anybody who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, would say, no, I don't want to grow as a Christian. Everybody would say, yeah, I want to grow. But growth doesn't just happen. It takes work, and it takes discipline. A problem with us, though, with, with just about anybody who approaches a discipline, is that we see it as, as work. And it's like, man, I don't want, I don't want to do this. It's, it's drudgery. Is, the, is kind of the word we used last week. It's, it seems pointless. But the reason that we see it that way is because we don't set, we don't see the goal. A lot of times people will talk about how it's easier to train for something when you have a goal in mind, like a marathon. It's like, well, just going out every day and running is not very exciting to a lot of people. And, and it does not sound like fun. And just the concept of just, I'm just going to go out and run right now for about an hour is just pointless in and of itself. But if you said, I'm training to reach this goal, then all of a sudden there's perspective, there's, there's purpose every time. And every time you don't engage in that discipline, you say, I am not meeting that goal. I'm not going to get there. I'll never be able to run this marathon. I'll never be able to play this instrument. I'll never be able to practice this craft if I don't, if I don't practice. So we talked about how um, Christ is our goal. Christ-likeness is our goal. And in, in the book of Timothy, it talks about being disciplined in order to get trained in righteousness, to become more like Christ. So we, we kind of compared, well, how, which one do you think is harder, becoming like Christ or running a marathon or being a doctor or becoming like Christ? Like which one of those sounds more feasible and which one takes more effort? Becoming like Christ is a little bit harder, if not impossible, compared to all these other things that we think deserve our discipline and our effort and our work. Yet somehow when we approach being a Christian, we think that it shouldn't. We actually argue as though, as though somebody coming up to us and saying, you need to work, is, is against what the Bible says. Because we say that you're just trying to preach a works righteousness. You're trying to tell me that, that I need to earn my salvation, but Jesus... Jesus says that I don't earn it, he earned it. And that's true, it's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that your faith shouldn't cause you to be moved, to train, to be disciplined. And we kind of ended right there at uh, 6.3 where it says, this we will do. When he says this, he's saying, we will move on to maturity if God permits. So that kind, of wrap, that kind of takes care of the whole works righteousness thing. It's, yeah, we want to work. We want to constantly practice to be trained so that we can be men and women of God, so that we can live like Christ. But the only way it's any, ever going to happen is if God permits. So, so let's encourage one another. Let's put in the work and let's pray that God grants the growth. So that was kind of the whole point. We talked about uh, practicing disciplines and, uh, and encouraging one another. Our, in our CG, we had a, we had a re- very good discussion. We didn't exactly discuss what specific disciplines we need to work on, uh, but that's something that I said we need to talk about, and we need to continue to have those discussions. It's not like, oh, one week in CG, why don't you talk about how you need to be a Christian? Um, it's something that we need to keep talking about and, and we need to examine ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to point out things in us that need work. Um, reading your Bible, praying, all those things that you know, we, we, con- we use a, as a constant guilt trip. They're not just guilt trip devices. They are meant to train us to be more like Christ. So if we're not training, then we're not growing. We are immature. We are the people that he's talking about. So I admit, I've got to work on those things. Through the rest of six, he's going to keep moving with that idea, that idea of immaturity. What's going to happen to the immature person who, who kind of just drifts away and never, never puts into practice these things? So let's read through uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 12. 
Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to, the contempt, to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God, uh, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, patience inherit the promises." All right. It's a pretty small crowd, but nevertheless, I had planned on giving a little disclaimer. Um, before we get into these verses, I just want to say right up front that I acknowledge that people debate the meaning of these verses. Um, I am likely going to present my understanding of these verses in a way that is common to a certain school of thought, um, school in quotes. However, I am not here to convert anyone to my way of, my way of thinking or to promote my favorite ism. Um, and I want you to know that. Um, I obviously think that There's a biblical and an unbiblical way to read this, but I'm not trying to frame it in those categories necessarily. I want us to, uh, or I hope that we as a church can talk about these concepts and that we can move on to maturity, like the author's talking about, together. Uh, The last thing that I want is for somebody in this church to come up to me six months from now and use this sermon as fuel for their discontent. Um... If one of us struggles, then my hope would be that we as a church would bear one another's burdens, I keep using quotes, bear one another's burdens, and uh, that we would edify one another without quarreling or becoming uh, divisive. Uh, I recognize also that there are men who are smarter than I am who have stumbled over these verses for a lifetime. Um... And there are people that are in this church who may not feel as though they get a lot of clarity when they read these verses. Um, Maybe there are even people who have come to different conclusions than what I've come to. But what I want to do is invite everybody to have an honest, respectful, and pride-free discussion about what these verses are talking about. So we're all the church. We're all in Christ. None None of us is perp... I'm struggling. None of us is perfect, especially me. So, dis- there's the disclaimer. Um, so, let's look at what it has to say. What do you think that these verses are talking about? If you were sitting down with somebody who didn't know much about the Bible, then how would you explain these verses? Or, if you're reading these verses for the first time, then what do you think it's trying to say? This is where everybody gives an answer, but they have slightly different answers. What do you think is kind of the gist of this? And you don't have to get into very big specifics, but, or little specifics. But what do you think is the meaning here? What is, what's kind of the point? What is the warning? Oh, terms. You've got to be careful with your terms. 
Yeah, I mean, there's only a few of us here. Get to the point. That's what I'm <laughs> you, well, you you got you got to the the issue, which I kind of anticipated that you'd be able to do that. What about um, any any anybody else? After thinking about it, I mean, I kind of agree with you as far as this passage goes, um, because I think even those who do believe in losing your salvation. Armenians, whatever you want to call it, would say that once you lose your salvation, you can regain your salvation later. So, this is pretty clear in saying you've rejected, you can no longer ever be saved, essentially. So I think this is leaning more towards that blasphemy thought. More so than a, than a debate between keeping your salvation and not We've summed it up. Time to pray and go home. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm glad we're in agreement. <clears throat> but um, it's the, the language is interesting. Um, I think just kind of in, in general, and I, you guys are saying the same thing, but I'll just, I'll just say what, kind of give a generic kind of description. Uh, I think that the, the writer is, is warning his audience of apostasy. So there's, there's a word to attach to it, I guess. Apostasy being the abandonment or renunciation of previously held beliefs, a, a turning away. Um, and there's some nuances, I guess, you could, you could add to that. Um, in this case, I think that the author of Hebrews is describing a situation where someone receives knowledge and gifts and grace from God, but they eventually abandon them. They fall away. This is what he says. So, and he's, you've already, you've already said, he's warning them that it's impossible to restore somebody who does that, who rebukes the gift of salvation after they've received a portion of of the grace of God which has enabled them to understand the gospel and maybe even reap some of its benefits. So, um, the, the language is interesting and, and, and the way that he describes this kind of hypothetical situation is, is tricky. Like, I think it's tricky for anybody to sit there and say, what exactly does he mean when he says this? Uh, and I might not have a perfect grasp on it, but I, I mean, I'll, I think that I'm able to draw a conclusion because we, we don't just have to look at this section of verses by itself, thankfully. I think if we did, it would be a little bit more clear-cut. It'd be a little bit, it would seem a little bit more easy to, to read a a solution or a conclusion into it. But we're going to look at a few different verses. But anyway, the way he describes him, um, for those who have once been enlightened, what I think of, about that is that he's describing somebody who has become aware that Jesus Christ is the only way to life. They understand that uh, the gospel and they know that they need a savior, a redeemer. So when it says enlightened, that's kind of my, my impression of what it's saying there. It's saying that they have received knowledge to understand the gospel, essentially. So they know 
the basics of what that means. They've tasted the heavenly gift. That one is, uh, tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. Those are, are for me, the most difficult. Um, gift. I went and looked at this word to try to figure out what he may be specifically saying. It seems like it, it's most often spoken of in relation to what Christ has purchased for us. It's, this idea of a gift is used a lot in the New Testament, uh, but it's, it seems like it's most often referring to the Holy Spirit being a gift, um, grace being a gift to us, and righteousness being a gift to us. In this sense, I think that it's talking about grace. They have been afforded some measure of grace to be able to understand these things, to be able to maybe even be affected by these things. Uh, so, so God shares, he gives them grace to an extent. It's kind of the way that I'm reading that. Um, a concordance might help if you want to go and compare some of the, the possible options. Like I said, gift is used a lot. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking that in this sense, it's the heavenly gift, we're talking about grace. And when he says shared in the Holy Spirit, that's another interesting one. I think that this could mean a lot of things. And I think back to Matthew 7, where, where you have people who are performing miracles in the name of Jesus, but who aren't considered Christians. Um, that's Matthew 7. I didn't write the verse down. I just knew it was in Matthew 7. Let me pull it up. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, where he's talking about not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I think that you have examples in other places of people who are doing things in the name of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. But obviously, they didn't endure to the end. They didn't have full faith or obedience in God. I think that you could say more about that, but I'm trying to reconcile certain verses with other verses and to say maybe this illuminates this a little bit. Tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. I think that that is a little bit more straightforward. Where, where he's essentially talking about they've, they've received scripture. They have received God's revelation. Um, and they have, they have seen God's goodness. And then they've fallen away. So, the, the question... We're going to take a pause. The way that a lot of people kind of frame this and, and the way that the debate kind of goes most commonly is people ask the question, are these verses... I'm just going to wait a second. Can you lose your salvation? Is what a lot of people want to say with, with these verses. Is, is, and I know, Tanner, you've already given us your thoughts... Um, is, is he saying that this person, this hypothetical individual he's describing was once saved and then lost their salvation? All those descriptors, having been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, are those describing a saved person? Are they describing a faithful Christian? What I want to do is read Scripture in light of Scripture and, and 
And I don't want to be too quick to make a conclusion just based on these verses, because there are other verses that would lead you to believe, oh, well, maybe it's not super simple. Maybe it's not super straightforward. Um, John 10, 27 through 30. This is a big one that people use to kind of throw a wrench into a simple reading of this, this set of verses. Again, John 10, 27 through 30. You can turn there, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. My sheep, this is Jesus talking, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one, who is, a, uh, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So what it's saying is, he's saying my sheep, the people that have been separated for Christ, given to Christ, given unto salvation, it's saying they hear Jesus, they know his voice, and they follow him. It doesn't, and, and this is where people are going to come back and say, I don't, I don't know that you can be saved and then, then lose it, because people read that and say, it seems to be saying that if you are a Christian, then you will follow. It doesn't say, my sheep hear my voice and then decide what in the world they're going to do about it. Um, so that's where people often come back and say, you can't just read it simply, oh yeah, get saved, lose it. Get saved, lose it. And that it's this constantly back and forth thing that, it, that we have to have, we have to figure out how these two verses, how these two sections work together. Um, so how do you reconcile them? You don't have to answer necessarily. We'll, we'll keep talking. And we'll, maybe we'll have like a bigger discussion at the end of this. Um, it seems that there's a perpetual struggle in the church between people who say, once saved, always saved, and people who say, you can lose your salvation. I don't know if they have a saying because... <laughs> Because honestly, I'm not from that background. And I, I, but what I want to do is, is try to figure this out just based on the Bible. And I really, I thought this, I thought through this for a couple of weeks, just trying to really leave all of the traditional arguments over here. And that's not to say that I, I think that I'm smarter than, than scholars or, or anybody else, but I wanted to say, okay, without, without just pulling those arguments in and saying, here, I, I wanted to try to sit down and, and think of this for myself, and I think I've landed somewhere. Here's, here's what I have to say about um, can you lose your salvation? Um, I think the problem that gets us into trouble is the way that we categorize or identify Christians or so-called Christians. Um, this, is, this is an argument that, that plenty have made, and I didn't just pull it out and say, this is the one that I'm going to use. I, I thought about it for a little bit. And, and you've, not, you've maybe heard this before, that the person who fell away was never saved. And I think I'm getting, I think I'm, I'm landing there. And I had, I had adopted that definitely before and just kind of taken that as true because I had no reason to disbelieve it. Um, but I've, after thinking about it, it makes a whole lot of sense to me. And here's the way I'm going to try to describe it. And hopefully I won't stumble over this. I'm going to give an analogy and it's not perfect. You could probably shoot holes into it and say, ah, I wouldn't have done it that way. That's the way analogies are. Um, they're usually not perfect. So here's the way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about this. We say this person lost, if someone says this person lost their salvation, well, let's define, let's, let's define that out a little bit. Let's Let's figure out what that means, their salvation. Saved from what? Hell. 
if they ultimately end up in hell, did they ever have salvation? No, because if they did, then they would have gone to heaven and then maybe fallen out of heaven. Like, does that make sense? Because they never, they never had it. They never had salvation. Because in the end, if they don't end up with it, then they never had it. Let me, here's where the analogy is. Um, so let's say that a parent is in the kitchen, they're making something. And I'm able to make these kinds of analogies because I have kids. Having kids really helps you understand a lot of, <laughs> a lot of different things in the Bible. Um, so I hope that this is helpful for you and not just me. Um, but let's say that there's a parent, they are in the kitchen, they're making something. The kid runs up, one of the kids runs up, who lives with them, obviously. And, and they say, oh, that smells good, what are you making? And you say, I'm making a, and they say, I'm making a dessert. And they say, they get all excited. They're like, ooh, I want some, I want some, I want, what is it? Does it have chocolate? Does it have, you know, they, they, go, they get crazy. And they say, let, let me have some, I want some right now. And you say, oh, well, I'm still making this. This is for later, after dinner. I'll give you a taste. So they, maybe they're mixing up this batter and they say, it's not done yet. We obviously can't just slurp up this batter. I'm gonna make this dessert, but I'll give you a taste of this. So they say, here you go. And the kid goes nuts and, and they love the dessert. They love the taste that they get. But the parent says, okay, this dessert is for later. We're going to have it after dinner, but here's the deal. You need to behave today because sugar already makes you go crazy. That's a, that's a little too far with the analogy. But um, you need to behave today. I want you to be nice to your siblings. I want you to be nice to your mom, nice to your dad. I want you to obey because if you are just rambunctious and wild today and you don't listen then you will not get any of this dessert. So, the, the parameters are set. Here's the gift, here's the taste. We're going to have this for later. You need to behave. And then the kid goes on, and they're, they're excited about dessert. And they move on, and they, they go out of their way to be nice. They're like, oh, here, let me open this door for you. Can I help you? Can, can I do things for you? Can, can I, I'm going to go clean up my toys. Wow, that's fantastic. Good job. Um, they act wonderfully. But then in my case, I've got multiple kids. So there's another sibling. And this sibling, later on in the day, is playing with a toy. And, and the kid who has been promised that they will have this dessert if they behave, walks up and they see this other kid playing with this toy. And they say, I want to turn with that toy. And the other kid says, nope, um, I'm playing with this toy. You can play with it later when it's your turn. And the kid says, I want that toy right now. And then they come tell the parent. And the parent says, you, you know, we need to take turns. We need to share. You know all these things. If, you, you, if, we're, if we're not nice, then you will not be able to have this dessert. Let me remind you of this thing. You need to behave. They go back and they are furious and they, they say, give me that toy right now or I'm going to take it. And then the parent says, you will not get dessert if you take that toy. And they just start getting upset. They throw a tantrum. They say, I don't want dessert. I want the toy. They smack the other kid and they take the toy. And then, of course, the parent comes up and says, you know you're not going to get dessert. And you didn't have to tell them in the first place because they're like, I know, I'm not going to get dessert. Did they ever have dessert? Like in the sense that they sat down and they, they partook of the final thing, the, the created baked dessert after dinner. No. They had a taste, and that taste made them, for a little while, changed. It affected their behavior in a way that you would think, things are going well. They have, they have been affected by the promise of this dessert. But ultimately, they never had dessert. 
I think that that is an imperfect analogy, but I think that it's, it kind of gets close to the idea where he's using these words, tasted. They've tasted these things. They've been given the promise. They've been, the parameters have been spelled out. Here, if, if you accept Christ, you will have eternal life. But you can't just say a prayer and move on. You have to obey. It's not enough to, to just claim faith. That faith ought to produce fruit in you. And maybe for a while, people are changed. But then ultimately, they don't persevere. I think that that's kind of what he's talking about. I think that that's what Tanner was saying in, in a much more concise way. Um, that... They were never truly saved. Let's use some verses. Because, you know, it's one thing for me to give an analogy about my kid's behavior. But it's another to use some scripture. So, Matthew 13. This is probably one that you guys are pretty familiar with. Matthew 13, 1 through 9. And then 18 through 23. You might be able to tell me in advance without reading this one what it says. This is the parable of the sower. I think that this, this gets across the concept. Um, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed, uh, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Thankfully, the disciples bothered him about what in the world he was talking about. And in uh, verse 18, he explains what in the world he's talking about. He says, Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. I don't think that's what Hebrew is de- Hebrews is describing back in chapter 6. But this next bit. As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understand it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. I think that this is directly talking about the same idea, where some people are going to hear the gospel. They are going to get excited. They are going to receive it. They are going to be changed by it. Their life will look different. There was... In their life, just this patch of dead soil. Nothing was there. The gospel came. Maybe it was delivered to them by a missionary, a pastor, whatever. They hear the gospel, and that is the seed, the word. It it gets into their life, and their life looks different after having received it. Something gets planted. Their life changes. Some sort of fruit obviously occurs. But when things get hard, when life presses on, eventually it gets choked out or it doesn't, it doesn't endure. So while for a little while everybody got excited, it didn't last. I think that that's what's being described in Hebrews 6. 
And he uses kind of a similar analogy. He says in verse 7 of chapter 6, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be, dur- to be burned. That almost sounds like the wheat and the tares, which is also in the end of Matthew 13, where it's talking about good, good plants being... Um, being spread out amidst bad plants and how they look the same for a little while, but then their true nature gets revealed in the end and one is separated for good and one separated for, for bad. So this is how I take these verses. That rain that he's talking about, the rain that often falls on it, I think that's the grace of God. Again, telling this person who knows the gospel and who has seen the power of the gospel, maybe has even seen the fruit of it in his own life, even if only temporarily. He receives that over and over, but then says, no, at some point falls away. Maybe he just abandons it. Maybe he rebukes it. But it doesn't stick. John, uh, 1 John 2.19 talks about uh, the spirit of Antichrist, essentially. And he describes it saying, They went out from us. If they had been one of us, then they would not have left. Colossians 1.21. Let me turn to that one. Because I didn't type it out. I think I'll start in 19, perhaps. Well, I should have written this one down in advance. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So this is interesting. He, I I think that this kind of goes in the face of the concept of waffling back and forth, where he's saying, he's able to present you holy and blameless if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. In other words, there's not this constant like wavering that's happening. So what I think is being said is, if you are a Christian, you will persevere. I think that it's possible to drink deeply enough of of God's grace that your life has changed, and I've already said this, but not so deeply that you persevere to the end. And I think that this, this lines up with what Hebrews has been saying. Back in Hebrews 3, verse 14, it says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed... We hold our original confidence firm till the end. And earlier in Hebrews 3, he talks about Moses being a house, being faithful in all God's house, but that God established Moses to be faithful. He says that the build, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So I think the, con- the concept is here that faith in Christ is going to produce perseverance. 
not this kind of waiver. It's interesting, the last part of this, the last part of this section of verses, because it's almost like he frames it in a big hypothetical. Because he goes back and he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not, un- not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. So he's, he's warning them, but he also provides them with assurance. Interesting. Um, some people think that uh, the, the audience of this letter was, was having trouble with people falling away from the church and going back to Judaism. And, and a lot of people kind of read that into these verses, saying he's giving a warning to the church in general, but, but also providing assurance. So he's not saying, every one of you are going to hell unless you change right now. He's saying, you need to be careful. You need to, you need to move on to maturity. You need to let the fruit of the word have its work in your life. You need to move on. However... God has seen those of you who have produced fruit. He is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And and there are some who who have had love put into their hearts, the love of God. And it says he's not going to overlook the love that you've shown for his name. And he provides them with assurance. He says he desires that each one of you show the same earnestness, same fruitfulness, same, same discipline, same, same confidence that he's talked about earlier in the gospel. And that through that confidence, they're then given full assurance of hope until the end. So that, so that, verse 12, they may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the the idea is that you need to hold fast in this confidence and you need to work, you need to be producing fruit. And if that fruit is in you, then it's an indicator that you have every assurance that you have eternal life because God is working in you. So if if we're saying, what about us? What about me? Do I have assurance? Well, I think Jesus says over and over, a tree is known by its fruit. So, for us, I feel like us individually and as corporately, this is the most practical way for us to know. We're not Jesus. We can't see right into the heart of a person, sometimes even our own hearts. What we have to observe, I think, is, is the fruit. What is your life bearing? Do you have confidence? Do you have the kind of life that is just moving toward righteousness, towards Christ-likeness? Uh, D.A. Carson about these verses said, about assurance. The Bible provides you with rich, thick, bountiful assurance and promise as long as you're walking with Jesus. But it's not interested in providing you with absolutist certainty when you're living in a way indistinguishable from the world of flesh and the devil. At that point, instead, it gives a warning and says, in effect... Are you really a Christian? If so, you will repent and return. And if not, then God have mercy on your soul, is the way he frames it. And I think that's helpful. So it's not, it's not that perseverance means that you're not going to ever sin. It's not as though you are all of a sudden perfect when you become a Christian. But what it means is, that you have momentum in the direction of Christ that never lets up. 
It never, it never goes back the other way. You may slow down, you may struggle, but you're always persevering. You're always moving in that direction. So for us, I think that it's worthwhile, again, to go back into CG and to just talk about what, what are we doing? How are we living this out? How are we, how are we producing fruit? Or rather, what does our fruit look like? Because everybody is producing some kind of fruit. Go back over these verses. Wrestle with these things. Because that's, that's the point. He takes a break because he's in the middle of this big argument about, or not an argument, but he's in the middle of this big exposition explaining what the high priest is. And then he takes a step back and he says, now, I, don't, I feel like I'm having to explain this stuff to you because you don't get it. And, and here's why. And, he's, and this, this is something that we as a church need to take personally. We need to examine ourselves and we need to look at these things and realize that it is possible to have professed faith in Christ, but then, to have, but then to fall away. We need to be aware of that for ourselves. We need to be aware of that for the people that are in this church. And we also need to be aware that the Christian will be carried along by God's grace to persevere, that they will have life that won't be taken away, that won't be threatened. So, as we move into response time, I think it's, it's worthwhile to, to pray about these things, to, have, to ask questions, to, to ask for perseverance. I don't think that that's a bad thing to do. Um, to, to, ha- to have demonstration of fruit that could only come from the Holy Spirit. Um, before I move on to praying, though... Uh, Questions, challenges, suggestions, anything. This is one I feel like it's worth talking about. Obviously, CG is for that, but at the same time. I'm going to think about it more. CG will be when I think about how more. I think that bringing in Matthew 13 and how liberal or conservative with our with the type the, the label Christian because different people would then label different people as saved. Absolutely. That and I think having a good understanding, being able to define from scripture where you draw the line on each each of those four. The two end ones are pretty straight. Yeah. You know, the one that didn't get it and the one that produced fruit. Those two in the middle, like, like where in Scripture you define which side of the line those people were on, I think is, that's the big key that I think I'm going to be thinking about between now and I think that practically that's probably one of the more important things. I mean, obviously examine yourself, but also as a church, we need to know what we think when we say, oh, this person's a Christian. Like, what, what exactly do you mean? It's hard, it's hard to know that immediately. And, and the more I learn, the more I'm, I'm cautious. Because it's almost like you have to say, time will tell. God already knows. I firmly believe that God already knows. Um, but for me, I just have to... That's why he's encouraging these people, because he's saying, I don't even think this applies to you. But listen, (laughs) you need to be sure that you're doing what you need to be doing. So that's interesting that he's thinking that he didn't even he wasn't even worried about their eternal salvation. But he still says, hey, as a church, you guys need to, you know, make sure that you are living the way you need to be living. Um, And I think that that's got to be us. I think that it's, it's much more common for us to just kind of make an assumption. Like, oh, they say they're a Christian. I'll take that. So. I think that's the biggest thing that I've been noticing, I guess. 
Because I mean, you can tell from what Tanner said earlier and what I said earlier, semantically we come from different backgrounds. Right. And and I didn't even notice what I was that I said it like that until now. It, it, like saying save it is a like a noun. Oh right, right. A noun word instead of an end product. It's a little tricky the way that I put it too, because I was like, well, by that definition, nobody is saved. Right. So I and I recognize that, but I didn't want to get into that caveat. <laughs> being saved, there is definitely a category in Paul's theology for being saved, sanctification. It's kind of frustrating that there's such split in the church on semantics, like on where yeah. we say this word. Yeah, I think that a lot of people argue over can you, can you lose your salvation or not when they ought to be arguing over, not arguing, but refining what, is, what does salvation look like. Yeah. That's what I think. It's, I, I want to think about it more, that my first impression is it's kind of frustrating to me to have been told for so long Well, yeah. I think it's worth it. I, I think that you don't, like, when, when I went and looked at this, I tried really hard not to just say, there's that argument, I like that argument, let's roll. Um, I really wanted to, to try to look at verses and say, what is this verse trying to say? And that's where I end up, I think. And it ended up that I ended up in one one school of thought without really trying to get there. Well, like Tanner said, I think Matthew 13, Yeah. Yeah, and there are plenty of things in the Bible that talk about assurance of salvation. How can anybody have assurance of salvation if it's possible to go back and forth constantly? Um, one, one concept that I like is something that Augustine developed, which is essentially that if it's possible for you to lose, for your action to toss away your salvation, then, then that conclusion of that kind of logic is that you were the one upholding it. Like, I produce my own salvation. And that seems a little tricky. Um... Seems a little tricky. So, again, back to my disclaimer. I would love to keep talking about this. I feel like this doesn't need to be something that we defer to that one guy who knows about that, that subject. We all need to know this. And we all need to understand this. So if it takes you wrestling with this, then that's what needs to happen, I think. Because I... Everybody needs to understand this. Because if you're going to go out and preach Christ to people and try to make disciples, then you need to know what a real disciple looks like. Um, and, and you don't need to be providing anybody with false assurance, definitely, if you can avoid it. Um, and I think that that's kind of what the author of Hebrews is doing. More questions, discussion? Of course we have CG, so. Yeah. Everybody who's listening to this, go figure it out. All right, well, let's pray. Father God, obeying your word is not something that oftentimes just happens. It's, it requires it requires grace. It requires the Holy Spirit moving in us, enabling us to understand these things, to to live out these things and 
And some of these ideas we don't like. Some of these ideas we don't understand. Some of these things we just, we don't even want to mess with because because we're, we're sinful and, and we don't want to have to struggle with these things. We don't want to think that some of us don't have assurance. We don't want to think that our faith requires that things change in us. We don't want to change. I, I continue to pray that, that we would be shaped by your word and not by our desires. I pray that we would be shaped by, by your desires and your word and, and what you have for us. And, and that as a church, we would not argue and become divisive and, and split up over, over things that ought to unify us. I pray that you would reveal in each and every one of our hearts where, where it is that we need to repent and that you would cause us to do so, that you would cause us to persevere, to move forward. And I, I pray that you would give us discernment to know good from evil. As it talks about earlier on in that chapter of Hebrews, I pray that you would give us a supernatural kind of discernment to see and to know when, when you are working in someone and when you're not so that we would be able to encourage each other, but also to be able to take your word out to the world and, and know who needs, who needs the gospel and who doesn't. Please grant growth, not superficial, temporary growth to this church, but lasting, long-term persevering until the end kinds of growth here in every one of us and in those who aren't here today and in those who we haven't even met yet. I pray that you would, you would grant growth that comes only from the gospel and only from your Holy Spirit and help us to understand, help us to live these things. In Jesus' name, amen.